Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of May 27th, the Recovery Tripod. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the impressive performance of risk assets over the most recent two weeks. We also discuss the three factors driving the risk on sentiment, and how, similar to a tripod, if we lose even one of the three, the recovery may fall over. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So Dan, it's been two weeks since our last recording before the Memorial Day holiday. And in those two weeks, we've seen a pretty impressive move in risk assets. I think we left off with a bearish longer-term outlook, but that we remained bullish in the short term. And it looks like that view's paid off. Yeah. So after a month of really not doing anything, investment-grade corporate spreads are now 30 or 35 basis points narrower over the past couple of weeks. Similarly, you have stocks breaking out of their range to the upside. And you can really feel a turn in risk sentiment. When we came into work on Tuesday morning this week and Wednesday, both days there was a massive rally in equities and a much more constructive tone in spread markets. And it really does seem like for the first time, maybe in this whole post-coronavirus crisis environment, that this change in risk sentiment might have some legs, right? Yeah. And putting all our cards on the table, we should acknowledge that shortly after our last podcast, we wavered a little bit in our bullish near-term view. We thought that the risk return wasn't justified by current spread levels, but we'd rather admit a mistake quickly than fight a losing battle. And the way that the headlines have broken over the past two weeks made us go back and re-implement that risk on view shortly after backing off of it. And really, it's being driven by increased optimism around the economic reopening. In our view, there's three pillars of this recovery, and all of them need to keep moving in the right direction for risk assets to continue to perform. And those are the economic reopening, headlines on vaccines or treatments for the virus, as well as government stimulus, either monetary or fiscal. And over the past two weeks, it's been that first leg, the economic reopening, that really has exceeded expectations. And I think there's two reasons for that. And the first reason is that it seems that people are really getting tired of being in quarantine at this point. Yeah, I agree. I think at least anecdotally over this past weekend, there was a lot more people out and carrying on with their lives. I think the emergence of summer, both in that it might bring a slight reprieve in infection rates and just that you know we are 10 or 12 weeks into this quarantine at this point, I think people are starting to get to the point where there's a need to resume some semblance of normal life. And on weekends, especially Memorial Day weekend, but other summer activities, I think, will largely go on. Yeah, Dan, I agree with you. Obviously, there's been a ton of anecdotal evidence surrounding the reopening of the economy and its success, but also increasingly you're seeing that being measurable and less traditional metrics like 
distance traveled in a day for people or amount of miles driven, you're seeing a return to more normal activity. And also, I I agree with you that I think this growing evidence of seasonality to the coronavirus is adding to that confidence. What we're seeing with some of those countries in the Southern Hemisphere that didn't feel a significant impact during the first wave of COVID-19, we're talking about you know, Brazil, Argentina, and some other South American countries that hadn't had heavy infection rates to this point that are now the countries with the leading infections on a daily basis, you're starting to see growing evidence of what we kind of thought all along, that potentially summer does help prevent widespread communication of the coronavirus. Yeah, and we should mention here that that is still up for debate, the extent to which transmission of the virus might slow in the summer. But there is mounting encouraging evidence on that front, which I think could go a long way to at least temporarily cause economic activity to resume to some extent. Yeah, it could just be a matter of coincidence that the coronavirus is only now taking off in South America. But it very well may also be that we're starting to see more concrete evidence of the seasonality to coronavirus, which is a bullish sign for spreads if we think that now in the US and Europe and some of the hardest hit countries that we might get a reprieve from coronavirus here. And so the hopes of economic reopening has really brightened in the past two weeks. And now we can add that pillar to the other two that have kind of been strong throughout this. On the vaccine slash treatment front, things have continued to move well. We've had a little drama surrounding the Moderna vaccine results, but there have been other vaccines that are looking promising. Now Fauci's saying that we might get a vaccine even in 2020. So on the vaccine front, I think at worst we can say that it looks like a vaccine is on schedule for the currently assumed date, which would be sometime early 2020-21. And according to Dr. Fauci, the leading voice on coronavirus in the U.S. is saying potentially this year. And then in terms of treatments, Remdesivir has been approved by the FDA. We haven't seen a lot of headlines on remdesivir recently, so hard to really put too much stock there. But we do know that there is a treatment that's been approved by the FDA at this point. So the vaccine treatment pillar, we can say, is at least stable and potentially improving. And the same can be said for the government stimulus pillar, where it's still very strong and potentially continuing to improve. Yeah. So we just saw headlines this morning that the European Union is planning a $2 trillion coronavirus response effort. Now, it's about 750 billion euros in a recovery plan and then a $1.2 or so trillion dollar budget deficit over the next seven years. So that stands to provide significant stimulus to that region. In the US, there's been talk about a phase four stimulus plan coming although the HEROES Act was shot down by Republicans and it's been fairly quiet on that front recently. But it's worth pointing out that if it were perceived that more stimulus was needed, meaning if financial markets started to really falter again, it's likely that they would put something more together like they did with the CARES Act. And in addition to what governments around the world are doing, the Fed still has a lot of ammunition left to respond from a monetary policy perspective with more stimulus should it be warranted. Even if we assume that the Fed has reached maximum utilization of all of its existing programs, the Fed still has capacity of up to $2 trillion to unleash more stimulus, and that was assuming maximum utilization. We're far from maximum utilization. In fact, most programs haven't even begun. There hasn't yet been a single dollar loaned under the Main Street Lending Facility. PMCCF is still at a zero. TALF still at a zero. And SMCCF has gotten going since the last time we recorded, but its volumes are still very low and can only buy ETFs. Is that right? 
Yeah, so the Fed has bought $1.8 billion through the SMCCF as of last Wednesday. We'll get another print on that tomorrow. But this is a $250 billion program. It's safe to assume that there's a lot more stimulus the Fed can offer through it. And it seems likely that the Fed will start to increase the purchases through this program once it can buy individual bonds, which it cannot do yet. Right. And so far, we've just been focusing on the Fed's programs meant to address credit markets, but also we have to acknowledge the quantitative easing they've done just buying government bonds and mortgage bonds that have pushed people out the risk spectrum. And that's had a strong impact from a technical perspective through the portfolio balance channel of QE. And that's really showing up in technicals as corporate supply starts to fall from the record supply we were seeing throughout April and early May. To be clear, IG issuance is still quite heavy, but it's just not record issuance anymore. And even as supply has fallen from record levels to just very heavy levels, we started to see investors seemingly start to fight a little bit over these new issues, which just demonstrates the power of Fed programs from a technical perspective. Yeah, even despite very heavy issuance in May, we've seen even more and more constructive primary markets. The further and further we get away from these wide spreads of late March. And as the Fed continues to pump more money into fixed income markets, credit markets just continue to trade more and more constructively. So from a high level, we're seeing encouraging developments in all three pillars of our quote unquote recovery tripod that inform our view that credit spreads will continue narrowing in the near term. And we can add another factor there, which is just capitulation. Much has been made over the past week about a large short out there in equity markets that's at serious risk of capitulating here, given just how optimistic the elk has gotten and the degree of support from governments and central banks around the world. It's getting difficult to fight this optimism. So we could see some capitulation there on some of those short positions, putting even more technical pressure upward on risk assets. So in the near term, things continue to look very good. Although, we acknowledge that it's when people start to get complacent that that's when you're at risk of things turning sideways on you. So Dan, let's transition the conversation to what could send spreads wider from here? So I think the obvious, as we've alluded to, to this point, if any of these three pillars that we've just talked about, vaccine hopes, economic reopening, and government stimulus, if any of these falter in a material way, I think it's likely that the rally will be derailed, at least temporarily, while the market tries to digest the impact of the weakness. Yeah, Dan, I agree with you. It appears that the market is currently pricing in the near-term end of lockdowns without a high probability that we're going to go back into lockdown. And that seems to be a reasonable assumption through the summer months. I think that people are sick of quarantine. People want to get back out. The growing evidence that the virus is seasonal will add to that confidence. And I think we could see some strong growth here in the next couple of months. The big risk then becomes September or October. Will we see a large second wave in the fall when the temperature starts to drop again that will force people back into lockdown? Yeah, I agree. I think that's definitely going to become the next question in the medium term. And Assuming that we do see a meaningful drop in transmission over summer months, I think the most important thing to do is going to be watching Southern Hemisphere countries and seeing sort of the extent to which weather is playing a role in virus transmission. Yeah, Dan, I agree. Watching Southern Hemisphere countries is going to be vital over the next couple of months. And if this evidence that seasonality does play a role in infection, if that continues to be confirmed over June, July, August, then I think the market will start to price in in the absence of a vaccine by September, which I don't think we'll get, or a breakthrough in treating the virus, the market will start to price in a second wave likely in September or October. They'll start to price that in perhaps as early as 
July. The question becomes, if we do see a second wave, would we anticipate seeing reinstitution of stay-at-home orders that are extremely damaging to the economy? Yeah, I think that's very much an open question. I think we've talked about this quarantine fatigue and how people are ready to go out and resume some semblance of normal life. If people are out and resuming some sense of normalcy during the summer, I think it's possible that this fatigue fades into the fall and that people are more willing to go back into some amount of lockdown. The question then becomes, what does that mean for the economy? And will we have more stimulus to offset this lack of aggregate demand? Yeah, I agree with you. If we back up and look at it from a high level again, the market is obviously pricing in a return to normalcy that's lasting. And that could happen. But right now, everything we're seeing points to a likelihood that we're going to see a second wave potentially in the fall. And so that means the market's pricing in either that upon the second wave, there won't be more lockdowns, or that upon the second wave, the government will come back with another large stimulus program. And this all assumes that there's not a breakthrough on treatment or vaccines before then. In our view, I agree with you. I think that people will accept another quarantine in the fall if it's considered to be short-term, having coming off of, of full summer, and potentially with the view of the vaccine is now in sight. We just have to do this one more time to get to the vaccine and this being over for forever. So if there's a view that people will accept another quarantine in the fall, the question becomes, will we see more government stimulus? Yeah, I think ultimately that we will. Of course, there's a risk to that view with 2020 being an election year and such a polarized political climate. But I do think ultimately it's likely we get a, another stimulus package. However, stimulus is likely to come only after there's another wave of financial market volatility. So in the interim, before the market prices to this stimulus, I think it's likely we're going to see another spread widening episode if the path of the virus plays out in the way that we've discussed. Yeah. And I think that that's the type of rhetoric we're hearing from the Republicans right now from McConnell in response to the HEROES Act, who's kind of saying like, well, before we pass our stimulus, we want to see what the effect of our stimulus thus far was. We want to see that states need it. We want to see that there's a justifiable reason for more stimulus. They're not just going to pass another two, three trillion dollars. So if that attitude continues to hold, it stands to reason we could see some more spread market weakness before more stimulus in the fall. And that would be the view for what house spreads could widen if over the course of the next few months, we see one, no breakthrough from a vaccine or treatment standpoint, two, growing evidence that a second wave is going to come in the fall, three, that people will likely accept another lockdown in the fall, and four, that government stimulus is going to come in response to another lockdown rather than before one. And all four of those things seem quite possible from where we sit today, which informs our view to be more cautious in the medium and long term. But also we should mention here that the second wave is not the only threat to spreads in the current environment. There's also the potential for just a permanently changed economy from the coronavirus thus far. Yeah, and it's still early, but it seems to me that this type of impact would result in some amount of bifurcation among sectors, right? So you might have, for instance, real estate suffer significantly if the permanent effects of the coronavirus result in some amount of flight from urban areas or changes in working habits. But most sectors would be largely unchanged in the long term, right? Yeah, I think most sectors would be largely unchanged. But what we're looking at is, are those jobs going to come back? Because obviously, before the coronavirus, 
a standard recession would be high unemployment leads to people not spending, which leads to business struggling and, and that type of pattern. And we could still see that even if we don't get a second wave. The question is if those jobs come back. And we've got some data trickling out of early opening states such as Georgia that haven't shown the type of bounce back in jobs that perhaps we would be hoping for at this point, whether that's because people aren't going back or businesses found a way to get by without as many employees. Who knows? Maybe the jobs will start to come back and just the early data hasn't been encouraging. But if we see more sustainable data that some of the job losses as a relative coronavirus just aren't coming back, we could be dealing with recession, whether or not there's a second wave that could threaten risk asset prices. Yeah, I agree. And I think one final point that merits discussion in terms of something that could bring another episode of spread weakness is tensions between the U.S. and China. I mean, it feels like a long time ago, but back in 2019, that was the main story was trade tensions. And those didn't really disappear. They've been taking sort of a backseat to the coronavirus, but tensions are still very much high and they've been increasing in recent weeks. Today, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that Hong Kong basically lacks any degree of autonomy from China. And this seems to potentially open the door to more trade uncertainty between the U.S. and China. Yes, certainly, even if it's not trade uncertainty directly as a result of the Secretary of State's declaration, it's just further evidence of the chilly relationship between the U.S. and China right now. With the election drawing near, it seems difficult to expect that relationship to improve, given how it doesn't feel like the coronavirus and the government's response to it is going to be something that the Trump administration highlights in its bid for re-election. It would seem, on the other hand, that the administration might want to focus more on the ongoing trade renegotiations, if you will, with China and improvement of trade relations for the United States in its bid for re-election. And that won't likely involve a quick reconciliation with China. So similar to last year, it's sort of impossible to say where U.S.-China trade tensions will go in the near term, but they don't look encouraging at this point, and they could continue to worsen. So when you combine a deteriorating trade outlook with certainly at least some headwinds from the coronavirus, we could see a renewal of risk asset price weakness. So just to bring it back up to the top, I think to sort of put a bottom line on our discussion here, I think we can agree that there is a path to a sustained economic recovery, and that is what risk assets have been reflecting over the past two weeks, buoyed by the increased optimism around the economic reopening. But that path to a sustained economic recovery is very narrow. And the degree of recovery in risk asset prices over the past couple weeks and months means that a renewed bout of volatility could result in significant risk asset price declines if we get another bout of volatility. So while we remain constructive on spreads in the near term, given a more constructive outlook, we continue to believe that the long-term risk-reward profile favors caution simply based on the many ways that this recovery could still go wrong. This concludes this week's edition of Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. 
This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.